Welcome to the show, y'all. Welcome to the show. I am over-prepared. If that is ever a thing, I have just achieved it. I am indeed over-prepared for today's show. Um, you'll see. You'll see what I mean. I got so many stories, they're uh, coming out of my nostrils. Well, that sounds weird, because it is weird. But anyway, um, so what do you have to look forward to today? Well, we have more war. We have Joe Biden bombing Syria, so we're going to talk about that. I'm going to give you the breakdown. Um, Should he have done it? No. (laughs) There's your breakdown. All right, next story. Uh, No, I'm kidding. We'll get into more specifics about it. I'll give you uh, the relevant parties and whatnot. We're going to uh, go through some of Biden's comments last week about the infrastructure deal. Um, There's a lot to say about that. Marjorie Taylor Greene goes after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We'll talk about that as well. Um, You're not going to want to miss this show. This show is jam-packed with substance. It's so substantive that they should come up with a new word that is beyond substantive. All right, so without further ado, let's get started, and uh, we'll do that with the bombing. Last night, we got some breaking news that President Biden bombed both Syria and Iraq. So this is from a Reuters reporter, Phil Stewart. He says, breaking, U.S. launches airstrikes against Iran-backed militias, targeted operational and weapons storage facilities at two locations in Syria and one location in Iraq. So this was at 6.54 p.m. yesterday. That's when we got the news. Um, So... Let me give you more specifics. I want to give you all of the, um, you know, relevant players in this here. So, as I already said, 
It's two locations in Syria, one location in Iraq. They say, the Pentagon says, we were targeting operational weapons storage facilities. The strikes were targeting a group called the Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces, the PMF. They are um, a mostly Shia-aligned group. They're aligned with Iran. And um, four members of one faction were killed, and they already threatened to retaliate. I believe the total number for all the bombings is seven people who have been killed. But again, I'll give you more specifics on that in a little bit. So there were, or there still are, I should say, 2,500 U.S. troops in Iraq. Now, the U.S. claims that they're there to fight ISIS. That claim is questionable. That claim is questionable. And the reason it's questionable is because the people who we just bombed are fighting ISIS. That's a fact. Okay, so the, uh, the Iraqi government and the Syrian government have both previously officially asserted that they want the United States out of their respective countries. So in other words, the U.S. is illegally occupying both Iraq and Syria under international law. So this is where the relevant portion comes in about the U.S. response, because Joe Biden uh, comes out there and says, or his administration goes out there and says, understand that the, um, the reason why we're doing these bombings is because there were drone strikes on our U.S. bases. And the drone strikes, by the way, to be clear, they admit they're like, there are zero casualties. Nobody on the U.S. side died. But there were anywhere from three to five drone strikes, drone strike attempts on our facilities in Iraq and I guess in Syria as well, although the article is unclear on that. Again, wildly unconstitutional and illegal if we had these things there. Um, but that destroys the claim that the U.S. is making of self-defense because they're saying that technically U.S. soil, so when you attack us there, you know, we're going to retaliate. But since we are there illegally under international law, and the Syrian government and the Iraqi government both said, you have to get out of our countries, therefore, under international law, we're the occupying force, and they're the ones who are doing self-defense, which gets to the main claim from the PMF and um, whoever was involved in the attacks on the American bases recently, which is, listen, it's retaliation for what happened to General Soleimani. So if you remember, it wasn't that long ago when Donald Trump was president, they assassinated General Soleimani, which is a top commander in the region who was taking on ISIS. But since he's aligned with Iran, the United States decided, what if we murder him? What if we murder him to send a message to Iran to show how tough we are? And there are, there's backlash from that. There are unintended consequences of that. So now you've got the PMF lined up against you. You have Shia militias lined up against you. And when you're illegally occupying Iraq and Syria, yeah, they might attack your bases and say, get the fuck out of here. And so when the U.S. claims self-defense, that doesn't make sense. Now, probably the most important point is this. They say, quote, the United States took necessary, appropriate, and deliberate action designed to limit the risk of escalation, uh, but also sent a clear, unambiguous deterrent message. Well, guess what? It's 100% illegal and 100% unconstitutional because there's no imminent threat against the United States, 
and there was no approval from Congress. So they could say all they want until they're blue in the face that this was necessary, appropriate, and deliberate action designed to limit the risk of escalation to send a clear, unambiguous deterrent message. But none of that is true. None of that is accurate. None of that is legal. And it it flips uh, the dynamic here. Because, again, the dynamic is if we're illegally occupying these countries and they attack us, which is what happened, they're the ones who get to make the claim of self-defense. They're the ones who get to make that claim. So we can't say it's self-defense. We can't say our bases are like U.S. soil if they're there illegally. So there's an easy way to protect the troops. If you're so concerned about U.S. troops getting attacked, get the fuck out of Syria and get the fuck out of Iraq. It's not that complicated. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, it's obvious, right? But, of course, uh, there's an even more devastating part to this story, which is, uh, according to Syrian me- media, the strikes in Syria. Now, the ones in Iraq were more against the PMF, but in Syria, there's a faction of Hezbollah that was targeted. Um, and apparently, the strikes in Syria, according to Syrian media, killed a child. And the uh, militia groups that we attacked are already talking about revenge. So if the idea was a deterrent or whatever the fuck the U.S. is claiming, the exact opposite is happening. You didn't deter anything. You made it more likely that the cycle of violence is going to continue. So, listen... He already bombed. Biden already bombed Syria once. We covered that story. There are very few outlets that covered that story. It's a crime that they didn't because this is your job. Like, do your job. If you're a journalist, if you're a reporter, if you're a political commentator, you got to call a spade a spade. And we illegally bombed them previously. Now we illegally bomb them again as we clutch our pearls and cry bloody murder as if it's them who are breaking the law and coming after us. Again, it all started with the assassination of General Soleimani. And, um, I find it the most absurd aspect of all this, which, again, very few people bring up, is that whether it's General Soleimani who we killed, whether it's when we go after Hezbollah, or whether it's going after Shia militias like the PMF on the ground. Everybody I just named, whether or not you like them, whether or not you agree with them, whether or not you consider them terrorists, it's all irrelevant. They are currently fighting ISIS and jihadist elements. So if you want to attack them, It is an ironclad fact of reality that you're acting as the de facto air force for ISIS and jihadist elements. You can't talk your way out of that one. You can't wiggle or weasel your way out of that one. That's just a fact. So, uh, listen, this is one one of the things where you look at it and you go, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. This is Joe Biden acting exactly like Donald Trump did. Donald Trump bombed Syria Uh, Joe Biden already bombed Syria once. Now he bombed them again. And um, I don't know what the hell was going on in in the conversation in the Situation Room when they were planning this out. But suffice to say, not a single voice in the room was bringing up the points I just made. Not a single one was like, hey, these guys are fighting ISIS. Hey, we started this by assassinating General Soleimani. Hey, we can't really claim self-defense because we're illegally occupying Syria and Iraq. I mean, it's a farce. We're making a joke out of international law is what we're doing. And so if you want to protect U.S. soldiers, if you're so concerned about our people getting attacked, then get the fuck out of there. Get out of there. Why do you even have a stake in a fight between Shia militias who you say you hate and ISIS who we all hate? Why do you say you have a stake in that? Why is that so important to you? Well, listen, at the end of the day, not to sound conspiratorial, but who wins? Who wins? The military industrial complex. They're the only ones who win. 
they win because whether it's a Republican president or a Democratic president, whether it's a Republican Senate or a Democratic Senate, a Republican Congress or a Democrat or a Republican House, excuse me, or a Democratic House, no matter what, there's more bombings, which means we need more bombs, we need more fighter jets, we need more drones, we need more equipment. And so the profiteering continues as stuff like this goes on. So, I mean, I'm sure they have their, a boatload of rationalizations that they take with them as to why they think this is necessary, why they think this is just, why they think we're fighting for human decency and democracy or whatever the fuck, but it's all nonsense. It's complete and utter nonsense. And now you know all the facts about this bombing. Um, again, I'm a loudmouth idiot YouTuber, and all I did was go through the dense articles on this and pull out all the facts and then explain them to you. You're not going to get, print outlet is an exception. I think print outlet usually does it, print outlets usually do a decent job. But uh, you're not going to get the detailed facts I just gave you from mainstream media. If you turn on CNN, you turn on MSNBC, you turn on Fox News. My guess is the criticism from Fox News is not going to be, how dare Biden bomb Syria? My guess is their criticism is going to be, he didn't bomb enough or he didn't bomb the right way. That's what I think is going to happen. But you're not going to get this, these facts, and you're not going to get this information. And you're not going to hear that we're there illegally and these people are fighting ISIS, and we started this by killing Soleimani. So it's a real shame. It's a real shame that an idiot, low-budget, loudmouth YouTuber is where you feel like you have to go to get anything resembling honesty and truth. But this is Joe Biden pleasing the establishment, pleasing the military-industrial complex, acting exactly like Trump on this issue, and bombing people who we shouldn't be bombing. If you want to not get attacked by drones in Syria and Iraq, get the fuck out of Syria and Iraq and problem solved because they're not going to bomb Cleveland next. So Joe Biden uh, gave a press conference last week and um, he discussed the infrastructure deal, the economy, and a number of things. And he had some moments that went pretty viral. Let me show you one of them here. The problem is I disappoint you because I can't answer all your questions and negotiate with you before I negotiate with my colleagues. But I really think we, the public understands and they're seeing the proof is in what's happening. It's not projected our economy is going to grow above 7% this year. Projections for from Wall Street to the Fed is going to continue to grow. We're going to increase more, and guess what? Remember, you're asking me, and I'm not being critical, y'all. I really mean this. It was legitimate questions you're asking me. Asking me, well, you know, guess what? Employers can't find workers. I said, yeah, pay them more. This is an employee's, employee's bargaining chip now. What's happening? They're going to have to compete and start playing hardworking people a decent wage. So there's an aspect here where I'm going to be very critical of Biden because what he's saying is absurd in a number of ways. I'll get to that. But first, the part that he's completely right about. So he's right that the dialogue in mainstream media, the dialogue in elected Republican circles, and the dialogue among a lot of corporate Democrats is this panic 
this idea of like, oh my God, maybe we are paying workers too much, or excuse me, maybe we are paying unemployed people too much. Um, we should cut back on the unemployment benefits. We shouldn't have given out so much in stimulus. We definitely shouldn't cut another stimulus check. All I'm hearing is that there's all these jobs open and people don't want to go work those jobs. So my only conclusion is that people obviously are incredibly lazy. That's the dominant narrative that's taken over the country. And you hardly find anybody who dissents from that except on independent media. Um, now, by the way, that totally doesn't tell you the whole picture because, and we'll get to a story on this later, there are millions and millions and millions of people who lost their job as a result of the pandemic and haven't gotten a penny in unemployment, even though they've gone through all the proper channels and filed the right paperwork. And the systems are so antiquated and so primitive and so terrible that they can't get the help out to people when they desperately need it. So nobody tells you about that aspect of it, this silent crisis we have where there are people out there, good people, hardworking people, who are getting absolutely hosed. There are also people who are getting evicted during the eviction moratorium. That's something that Jordan Chariton from Status Quo has been reporting on, and he's been interviewing a lot of these people. We have homelessness increasing. And by the way, if there is anybody who's gotten the stimulus money and is getting some unemployment money or whatever it may be, and they were working a job that they hate, and now they have a little bit of time to reevaluate and potentially look for a job that they actually like. You know what I say to that? Good. Good. Now, maybe there's some tiny percentage of the population that truly is the stereotype of like, yeah, if you give me the bare minimum, I'm going to totally check out mentally. Okay. To them, I say, that's fine. Go ahead. Whatever percentage it is, 1%, 2%, 4%, but we're not really talking about anything more than that. So this notion that we should talk about this 1% or 2% who might fit this stereotype, when there's like 98 or 99% that do not fit that stereotype and are just good people just trying to get by, and there's people who are getting totally hosed by the system, and there's people who might, be, might have gotten the stimulus check and gotten some unemployment assistance, and it's not that they're lazy, they just want a half-decent job so they don't waste their lives doing something they don't want to do, I think it's a positive thing. So the media narrative is messed up on this. The Republican narrative, the corporate Democratic narrative, it's all messed up. So Biden is correct by saying, oh, you want people to get back to work? Pay them more dipshits. And we have facts to back this up. So there's an ice cream store in Pittsburgh. There was a great piece that was written on this. Um, they, wait, they raised their wage from $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour, and they got over 1,000 applications instantly. And by the way, they stopped counting at 1,000. They were like, okay, we, can't, we literally can't go through all these. may have been 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 applications. All they did was raise their wage from $7.25 to $15, and boom, instantly also, look, turns out people aren't so lazy when you offer a living wage. Wow, shocker. Um, now, I, more examples. Uh, there's a great Washington Post article that lays this all out. There's this, this company called the Fifth Street Group. They own five restaurants. They're mostly in Charlotte and uh, Charleston, and... Get this, quote, the company raised the starting wage for all of its staff to $15 an hour, up from $12 an hour to $13 an hour. And it created a tip the kitchen program, adding a second line to table checks for gratuity for the back of the house staff, which the restaurant matches up to $500 per night. That move has increased wages for non-tipped employees, such as line cooks and dish, dishwashers, 
to an average of $23.80 an hour. Applicants began pouring in nearly overnight, the owner Waylon said. A manager at one of his restaurants, Tempest, told him that 10 people walked in to drop off resumes over the course of one week after the policy change, compared with just 15 people over the four previous months. Within three weeks, the restaurant group went from about 50 to 60% staffed to nearly fully staffed. Wow, shocking. Now, by the way, credit to this guy, because apparently he's the owner of these five restaurants, and he heard tangentially overhearing a conversation from some of the workers in the kitchen that one of the guys uh, was struggling to afford necessities. I forget what it was. It was like maybe school supplies for their kid or something along those lines or uh, making a rent. And he just had a light bulb moment like, oh, my God, my industry is broken. These people can't survive, and they're working full time. And so he was like, okay, I'm going to pay $15 an hour, and I'm going to start the, um, this program to tip the kitchen as well. And then now they're making $23.80 an hour. And people are like, damn, I would like to work there. Now, granted, listen, you could fire back and say these are all anecdotal. Fair enough, but I got a lot of them. And after a while, if you add up thousands and thousands and thousands of anecdotes, it actually becomes solid empirical evidence. So they go on to explain there are grocery stores that had a similar story. Uh, pizza shops that have the same story. And it, it's just, yes, he's saying raise wages. When people raise wages, people get back to work. Not that complicated. So if that's really what you want, then raise the wages. And you could say, hey, maybe some can afford it, some can't afford it. Fair enough. Believe me, many more can afford it than they're letting on, for sure. But even for the ones that can't, okay, well, that's where good government policy comes in. And maybe you set up some sort of a system where you subsidize the small businesses that can't afford it, and you subsidize them with the condition that they have to hire people at that $15 an hour number. There are ways around this, man, to look out for the workers. And Biden's right. Now, finally, the employees have a bargaining chip when they didn't previously. That's a good thing. Why does everything always have to be framed from the perspective of the owner class? Why? Why? But now here's the criticism of Biden, and this is obvious. You guys probably, it was probably the first thing you thought of as you watched that clip. He's like, pay workers more. Hey, asshole, you're the president. You pay workers more. That's the $15 minimum wage out of the last reconciliation bill. Now, I get it. Biden makes the argument, I mean, God, there were seven or eight Democrats in the Senate who were against the $15 minimum wage. What am I going to do? I have no power. There's nothing I could do to change that. Nonsense. Politics isn't stagnant. It's fluid. It's always evolving. It's always changing. Take a page out of Lyndon B. Johnson's book. Take a page out of FDR's book and play the carrot or stick approach game. Call them into your office and say, I'll be your best friend or I'll be your worst enemy. You decide. If you vote for the $15 minimum wage, here's what you get, Joe Manchin in West Virginia. You get another military base or you get extra infrastructure projects or you get a position in my administration or whatever it is. I'll give you whatever you want if you work with me and vote for the $15 minimum wage. If you don't, I'm going to be your worst enemy, and I'll find somebody to primary you, and I'll support them. I'll do, I'll do a address from the Oval Office and call your ass out and say, you're the problem. You're against democracy. So that's what you do, and you do that with all the seven or eight Democrats who are against it. Now, by the way, if you twist their arms sufficiently or you give them enough to sweeten the deal, of course they'll change their mind. And naturally, shame on the lefties in the House for not voting together as a block, you could have gotten 12 of them to vote together and say, we're literally not voting for a single package unless it has a $15 minimum wage in it. And then that would light a fire under Biden's ass where he knows, I got a better chance of changing eight people's minds than I do of changing 12 people's minds, so let me get to work on the eight people. I mean, that's, everybody, at every level, people failed. The eight Democrats were being against it because they're corrupt sellouts. 
the eight Democrats who are against raising the minimum wage, they all take a lot of money from corporations, which is why they have that position. It's not some ideological position that they came through, came to when they reasoned through it. Nonsense. So screw them. Screw the lefties in the House for not voting as a block and trying to force the issue. And screw Biden, because he shouldn't even need the lefties in the House to force him. He should have been like, I'm for $15 minimum wage, so this is what I'm going to do. And he didn't do it. So he's telling businesses, hey, why don't you voluntarily raise $15 an hour? How about you pass a law saying we have a $15 minimum wage, and then they have to do it? How about that, Joe? So anyway, that's my breakdown of this. He's right, but also he could have done something about it, and he didn't do anything about it. Now, by the way, I'm a reasonable guy. If he tried everything he could and he still didn't get it, I'd tell you that. And I'd be like, he tried everything he could and he couldn't get it, so he's right. You can't blame him. You can't blame the Democrats. You've got to blame the, you know, the individual employers, and hopefully they do raise it to $15 an hour. But he didn't try everything. In fact, he didn't try anything. And so, of course, I'm going to blame him because the buck stops with him. So, oh, man. What are we going to do? Democrats have this mind virus where they love to say things that are decent and then never act on it. Go read the Twitter feed of any of the lefty Congress people. Each tweet, it's banger after banger. Everything's just, they're spitting fire all day about whatever, healthcare system, wages, you name it. And then, you know, when it comes time to actually fight for it and do stuff for legislation, they're scared of their own shadow, and they don't do dick. They don't lift a finger. They don't play hardball. And this is an example of, of Joe Biden doing that. Raise the wages. I like higher wages. Really? When, what about with the legislation where you could put the higher wages in it? See, what happened was me and Craig and them was down by the Safeway, and we saw that somebody was coming down the thing, and we just made sure that we had to hide in the corner before we got around to the thing, and Steve and them was there with us. And that's why we was new phone. Who did? Obnoxious, man. Super obnoxious. Okay, next. Let's keep going, bitch. Marjorie Taylor Greene was at Trump's uh, very bitter rally. I mean, he seems like he's doing a tour just to remind everybody how butthurt he is, how salty he is, how much he thinks the election was stolen, so on and so forth. Um, I mean, it, we're three years out from the next election, and he's already doing a rally. It's like, Jesus Christ, dude, relax. Go play golf more. Like, you, don't need to, you don't need to be doing this now. But anyway, he can't help himself. He needs the adulation of the crowd. So Marjorie Taylor Greene was one of the uh, opening speakers at this Trump rally, and she gave us this terrible moment. ...by AOC, the little communists from New York City. Right. Yeah, lock her up, too. That's a good idea. <laughs> She's not an American. She really doesn't embrace our American ways. You want to know why? She has something called the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal makes her un-American. Here's a question. Did the New Deal make FDR un-American? Don't get it twisted. If Marjorie Taylor Greene lived at the same time as FDR, she would have argued that the New Deal makes him un-American. I have no doubt about it that she would have argued that. Because she is a dyed-in-the-wool, Kool-Aid-drinking, hardcore, tribalist, partisan, hack. It is super obvious 
the Green New Deal makes her un-American. So the argument is she's un-American because she doesn't agree with me on politics. Geez, what a narrow definition of American you have. So she calls her the little communist. That also just hilarious to me because anybody who understands political definitions, anybody, it's really not that hard to look at the stuff that AOC says she's in favor of and then look at where that would make her fall on the political spectrum or what label or definition would apply to her. And when you go issue for issue, it is beyond clear that AOC is just a social democrat. That's all she is. So mild, you know, Norwegian-style social democrat, just barely left of center internationally. That's all she is. Now, she claims she's a democratic socialist. I haven't seen her advocate many post-capitalist ideas. And democratic socialism is post-capitalist. Social democracy is not really post-capitalist. I mean, I guess arguably it is, but it's really more of a, a, a pure hybrid mix of socialism and capitalism. So she's just a mild social democrat, and this jackass is calling her a communist because she doesn't know anything. She doesn't know definition. She doesn't know labels. She doesn't know facts. But I get it. In their mind, it's like just label somebody a mean, scary word that right-wingers shit their pants over, and then boom, argument over, and she thinks she won. Well, congratulations. Um, Now, AOC responded to this, by the way, because this blew up on Twitter and went viral, millions of views, and... (laughs) AOC's response was, first of all, I'm taller than her, or first of all, I'm taller than you. I don't remember how she phrased it. Um, and, I mean, I, I don't need to, need to explain this to you guys, but obviously that's a joke of, like, she's being called un-American, she's being called a communist, you know, and her response is like, you called me little, I'm not little, or you're smaller than me. Because Marjorie Taylor Greene is 5'3". I didn't know that, by the way, until yesterday. And AOC is, like, 5'6", or something like that. So she's like, I'm not little. I'm, first of all, I'm taller than you. But, I mean, listen, that's a joke, because obviously she's not addressing the un-American thing, and she's not addressing the communist thing. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, leaving her right over her head, she responds like, yeah, but you're a commie. Yeah, that, like, that was a joke, Marjorie. That was the joke that AOC was making. Okay, anyway. I mean, just, there's nothing going on up here. Nothing. Um, but, I mean, I have, we're not, I haven't even talked about the most important part yet. Now, she says it in passing, and I guess you could argue maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene is, like, joking or saying it in jest. I don't know how much I buy that. But she says, um, yeah, you should lock up AOC, too, because somebody said lock her up in the audience while talking about AOC. And she's like, yeah, that's a good idea. We should lock her up, too. There's a deep irony in casually musing about locking up your political opponents who haven't committed crimes, but they just disagree with you. So you want to lock up your political opponents as you're saying they're an American. The most American thing you can think of is supposed to be due process, the Constitution and due process. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene having a colossal diarrhea shit all over the Constitution and all over due process. Lock up my political opponents simply because they're my political opponents. She goes on to say, oh, she's not American because she doesn't embrace our, quote, American ways. What are your American ways, Marjorie? What does that even mean? Does she have to, like, go hunting and fishing and, like, NASCAR in order for that to be the case? I'm sincerely asking, like, what do you mean she hasn't embraced our American ways? What does that mean? Now, listen, you could argue she's saying, hey, culturally she's not in alignment with me and she's not in alignment with the right, so that's what makes her un-American. You could argue that there's underlying xenophobia here. Hey, she's not like the real Americans, and you know what the real Americans look like, wink, wink, nod, nod. 
Or you can argue it's purely a political thing. Anything democratic or anything on the left is un-American by definition. But either way, the entire conversation is idiotic because she's American. So why are we even having this conversation? And I mean, listen, that, that is the problem, right? Everything, it's immediately nuclear, it's immediately vituperative, and it's totally non-substantive. And I mean, again, to get back to the main point, if somebody supports the Green New Deal, does that make them un-American by definition? No, of course not. Of course not. It means they disagree with you on politics. And we already have, historically, the New Deal. Obviously, that's as American as apple pie now. It helps save us from the Great Depression. But Marjorie Taylor Greene either doesn't know that or doesn't care. And really, I mean, imagine for a second the roles were reversed, and it was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez giving a speech, opening up for Bernie or whatever. And she um, does the equal opposite of everything that Marjorie Taylor Greene does here. Imagine AOC called for locking up Marjorie Taylor Greene. What would the reaction be? Everybody on the right would be like, see, see, she's like Fidel Castro and she wants to lock up political opponents and she's a totalitarian and she's a communist and she's a tyrant and a dictator and proof, proof. But they say lock up AOC and it's called a random Tuesday. I don't know what day of the week she actually said this on, but the point is they'd say it any day of the week. So, I mean, this is what we're dealing with, man. I... I have zero tolerance for partisan tribalist hacks. And that's exactly what Marjorie Taylor Greene is. You know, she's not going to hear out individual issues. She's not going to hear out substantive arguments. Anything that she associates with the left, broadly speaking, or the Democrats, broadly speaking, immediately un-American, lock them up, communist, so on and so forth. And listen, I'm, I'm just as critical of hyperpartisanship on the Democratic side as well, if it's mindless, if it's mindless. But this is really the peak of being mindless. And she has a weird obsession with her. Like, apparently Marjorie Taylor Greene, we covered this story before, she literally chased Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez around Congress. I was like, debate me, debate me, or whatever the fuck. She is one of the dumbest as well in all of Congress. You know, I remember, what, what was the thing we covered where uh, there was a story about how Wall Street and BlackRock are buying up all the houses and then pri- it's out of the price range now for so many people or they try to buy it up and then rent it out to people and price gouge them, charge exorbitant rates or sell to people and price gouge them. And, you know, she basically responded to it and said, like, this is socialism. <laughs> You're literally describing capitalism. This is happening under capitalism right now. And, and there was a tweet that was like, under this system, people at the top take everything, and then everybody at the bottom gets screwed over. And she's like, that's socialism. They're describing something that's happening under capitalism right now, and we have record wealth and income inequality, more than even the Gilded Age, and she's still right over her head. I mean, just nat IQ shit. That's what we're talking about. So anyway, she's going to give us a lot of content over the coming years. And listen, it's low-hanging fruit. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. But what am I going to do? Ignore the fact that now Congress people on the right are calling for locking up their political enemies over disagreements? By the way, whatever happened, I don't believe in cancel culture. And I believe in free speech. This is the definition of cancel culture. And the definition 
of being against free speech. Because she believes in the Green New Deal, she's un-American and we should lock her up. So in other words, thought crimes. You want to lock people up for thought crimes. You want to lock people up for saying things that are politically incorrect in your circles. That sounds like canceling to me, don't you think? Okay, next. So there's this general named, uh, I think Mark Milley is his name, and he was at some committee hearing, and he made the argument that, um, listen, it's important to teach racial stuff in our school system, including critical race theory is the big thing that the right is flipping out over, even though it's only a collegiate level course. Nobody's learning it in elementary school or middle school or high school or whatever. But he basically said something along the lines of, when you look at what happened on January 6th, um, there's effectively a backlash because the white population feels like they're losing power, they're losing control, and the changing demographics are scaring them. And so it manifested in a sort of uh, white nationalist terrorism in a way. Um, now, is there some truth in that narrative? Yes, there is some truth in that narrative. It's not a coincidence Trump was the guy who said, you know, the Mexicans, they're criminals, they're rapists. I assume some are good people. It's not a coincidence that guy won in 2016. It's not a coincidence the guy who said we need a total and complete shutdown of Muslims coming into this country. It's not a coincidence that guy won. It's not a coincidence the guy who blamed immigrants for all the problems of the white middle class. It's not a coincidence that guy won. So there is an element of truth in that. Now, where I disagree with the narrative is that's not the only thing that matters. And oftentimes that's brought up to deflect from what could be done on the economic front to change a lot of people's minds and get them to vote left. So in other words, yes, economics matters. Yes, you could have swayed a lot of those Rust Belt voters if you had a lefty who actually cared about not outsourcing jobs and supported unions and supported higher wages. So listen, both narratives are true. The narrative of like, this has a lot to do with economics and an establishment screwing people, and so we should address those things to stop people from turning to fake populists on the right who are xenophobic. That's true, but it's also true that there is a contingent of right-wing base voters, hardcore Trump supporters, where they are sort of overtly xenophobic and bigoted and racist. And if you don't acknowledge that, I think that's very silly and very dense. My issue is that when people like completely focus on only that, because that leaves out what could actually have been done, which is to flip the votes of tens of thousands of people, which would have changed the election, if you actually had a populist lefty who isn't xenophobic and who put the blame where it belongs, the corporations, the corruptions, the billionaires, so on and so forth. But anyway... So Mark Milley um, made a point similar to that, and then Tucker Carlson and others, Laura Ingram, went after this guy, and they basically were like, oh, yeah, well, to show this guy that he's wrong and show him who's boss, we should defund the military because the military's gone too woke. Based? So, listen, let me be clear. When people say defund, I do think that sounds a little bit more like abolish. And obviously, I don't want to abolish the military. Obviously, I don't want to abolish all police. But if you want to say cut the military budget, based as fuck. So if you want to say because they're too woke, let's cut it. I don't care why you want to cut it as long as you take the right position and you want to cut it. So I'm totally down for that. But anyway, now you have the right arguing like defund the military because or cut the military because this general's too woke and the military's too woke. We need to make them not woke and then we'll fund them more. And so MSNBC comes in to respond to everything that's happening 
and listen to what Joy Reid and her guests say. Representative Bullion, I guess that I'll throw it to you. Are Democrats prepared to go out there and explain to voters that it's Republicans who now want to defund the military? They tried to use defund the police, which is, by the way, DOA as a thing, right? And, and look at New York City, where they just elected the most pro-cop person to be mayor, at least they're close to it. That's not a thing. Defund the military is a thing. They're saying it on Fox. Yeah, and I want to back all the way up because I hadn't seen those tweets that you referred to about the Viet Cong, and I'm, I'm literally nauseous. My father fought in Vietnam, my grandfather in Korea. Uh, you know, the idea that we can be trolling and, and not understanding the consequences of this. One of the things that struck me about General Milley's testimony uh, yesterday was a continued reminder that from him that not just the people in that room are listening the things that we're saying, and not just the people who are watching Fox News or this show are listening. When we're talking about defunding the military, the very thing that allows and allows us to be the people we are, say the things that we're saying, and, and to be the nation that we are, the democracy that we are, other people are listening. Our enemies are listening. And I think what's remarkable about uh, the Democratic Party right now is that we get it, we get it certainly much more than the Republican Party does right now. So now all of a sudden, when it's politically convenient for partisan Democrats, they're like, the military is fighting for our freedoms and protecting human rights and democracy and decency and allowing us to thrive and have free conversations. The left correctly pointed out during the Bush years that our military was being used in an imperialist fashion to steal natural resources and... It was used for profiteering for the military-industrial complex, the defense contractors. That was the position, the correct position of the left during the Bush years. Now, I mean, left. That's the correct position of Democrats in the Bush years. Now, because it's politically convenient, because Republicans are saying defund the military because they're too woke, now all of a sudden they're saying the military is great and wonderful and they protect our freedoms and they're fighting for human decency. My favorite part was... Our adversaries and our enemies are listening to us talk about defunding the military. So in other words, the implication is like, oh my God, what if they pounce and use this against us? What if our enemies hear us talk about defunding it and they view it as an opportunity to come after us? Oh my God, quick, I'm getting word that Russia is moving on Toledo and China is invading Fort Lauderdale. Are you fucking kidding me? These people are ridiculous. So the argument from Joy Reid is like, well, Democrats aren't actually for um, defunding the police, but Republicans are for defunding the military. Oh, my God, she thinks that's so brilliant, and she thinks that's such a gotcha, and she thinks that's, like, politically savvy. Defund the police isn't really a thing. Defunding the military is a thing, and the Republicans want to do it. So now the dumb idea among partisan hack Democrats on MSNBC is police good, military good. They're trying to like out patriotism the right in the same way that during Russiagate, Democrats were like, the FBI is a wonderful institution and they would never say things that are misleading or wrong. Yeah, of course. Uh, Imagine actually believing that. Imagine flipping on, on that the deep state and our intelligence agencies, I mean, with their track record of just horrendous actions, whether it's overthrowing democratically elected foreign governments or going after and infiltrating civil rights movements or, or the Black Panthers or sending a letter to MLK telling him to kill himself or being involved in assassination and so on and so forth. I mean, 
it's a joke. So listen, what's my position on it? I already sort of alluded to it before. But i got to be honest with you guys. From my perspective, I don't like the language of defund the police or defund the military because whether or not you want to admit it, defund does actually sound like abolish it, eliminate it completely. And if you poll the idea of abolishing or eliminating completely the police or the military, my guess is you're going to be above 80% of the American people are going to say no. Probably over 90% of the American people are going to say no, and they're also going to laugh at you and think it's ridiculous. So I don't like the, the phrasing, defund, but if we, just, if we just change it to what the actual proposals are, like cut the military and cut the police budgets, on that I say, hell yeah, absolutely, that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. Now, by the way, in some ways I'm actually tough on crime because I, I'm only soft on crimes that I don't think should be crime. So like all nonviolent drug offenses, free everybody who's locked up for those, Change the laws immediately so that nobody gets arrested for a nonviolent drug offense from here on out. I'm only soft on crimes that shouldn't be crimes. So all nonviolent stuff, free them, free them, free them, and change the laws immediately. But on crimes that should be crimes, rape, assault, murder, grand larceny, whatever, I'm not soft on those. I'm sort of tough on those. But you can still be tough on those crimes and cut police budget because police budgets are colossal at the moment. Colossal. And they don't do the things that you would hope that police are doing with that. So yes, you should cut police budgets and you should do what the activists are saying, which is like take the money and redirect it into programs to, for example, help homeless people, help people with mental health issues who normally, you know, somebody would show up, a cop would show up with a gun and a badge and it could escalate and somebody could die. Give it to people who are trained experts in that field who can communicate with somebody going through some sort of a mental breakdown. And so the first line of defense isn't, somebody who might end up accidentally killing these people. The first line of defense is somebody who's sympathetic who can get the situation under control. So, yes, do that. So cut the military budget, reduce the military budget, reduce the police budget. I don't even need to get into the specifics of the military one because it's obvious. We spend more than the next 10 biggest nations combined, and most of them are our allies. We have mil- like 800 or 900 military bases around the world. This is all while our own infrastructure is falling apart. Cut the police budgets and cut the military budgets. And that's the reasonable position, but simply because of political, tribalist, partisan hack games, now MSNBC's position is like, defunding the police is bad. I guess they'd even say cutting the police budgets is bad, by the way. That's what it seems, they seem to be implying here. And defunding the military is bad. And again, I, the implication is sort of like even cutting it is probably bad. So now it's yay police all day long and yay the military all day long simply because they want to score some cheap partisan brownie points. This is the kind of commentary I just can't stand. It drives me fucking crazy. It drives me crazy because there's no, there's no core in this conversation. The core of the conversation on MSNBC is elected Democrats good, Republicans bad. That's what everything boils down to. And I'm not letting the right skate on this. They've never said anything about cutting the military or defunding the military at all. Until now, and the reason why they're like, oh, maybe we should do that, is because they're saying the military is too woke. So torture, endless war crimes, bombing babies, supporting dictators, the list goes on and on. That's totally cool. They never had a peep of disagreement over that. So they're also partisan hacks. So Fox News is just Republicans good, Democrats bad. MSNBC is just Democrats good, Republicans bad. Nobody actually has a position on the fucking issues, on the issues. 
Well, again, that's why you come here, and that's what my job is. So I just told you my position. I would definitely reduce police budgets and reform the police. I'd definitely um, cut the military budget and reform the military so that we actually use it for defensive purposes and not for imperialism and the military-industrial complex and things of that nature. So it's just I don't know how anybody could enjoy this kind of commentary because it's just so dull and stale and you're operating at just a low IQ frequency. Like, it's just embarrassing. It's embarrassingly simplistic. And the fact of the matter is, very few people are watching it. I mean, listen, I'm, I can't talk. You know, I'm here on YouTube. The algorithm has really, really kicked my ass in many ways. So unfortunately, not nearly as many people are watching this as used to be able to watch it, and that's a shame. Our stuff isn't recommended to new people that much. So far be it for me to criticize numbers. But listen, if you're on MSNBC and you're on CNN and you have a captive audience and you're getting obliterated by Fox News, that's just embarrassing. If you put me on MSNBC, it doesn't matter what fucking time slot you give me, I'd, I'd eventually beat Fox News in my time slot, without a doubt. So, I mean, this is, it's just embarrassing. And so nobody really is watching MSNBC or CNN, and I understand why. Next. You guys are going to get a kick out of this. So two Fox hosts, prominent ones, are at each other's throats. Or I should be more clear, it's not that two Fox hosts are at each other's throats, it's that one is going after another one and not bringing them up by name, but it's definitely about them. And the other one hasn't responded, at least not yet. My guess is he probably won't respond, but we'll find out. So there was a recent article that came out about Tucker Carlson. I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about that after you see this clip. But this is Mark Levin really brutally blisteringly going after Tucker. Let's watch. If some of my friend Thomas listen, and he is my friend over at the American Thinker and others, we know journalists, so many of them are unethical. That's the point. We know that they'll only keep confidences that they want to keep. They keep people anonymous that they want to keep anonymous. We know this. That's the point. So don't be surprised when they don't. That said, I've been in this business almost 20 years. I worked in the Reagan administration for eight years. I never once, not once, leaked anything to a newspaper or media outlet, ever let alone the New York Times and their ilk. Certainly not about the people around me. Now, I could go further into this. I'm not going to. It is a serious misunderstanding of one's role, of loyalty, 
and character. Let me leave it at that. I used to be approached by the likes of a Brian Stelter, Oliver Darcy at CNN. I never sat down with them. Never leaked anything to them. Years ago, when I worked for the Attorney General of the United States, they tried to penetrate the office of the Attorney General. We'll write a great story about you. The chief has said, I rejected all of it. How could I look myself in the mirror? Plus, I had good parents. They taught me to be a, you know, stand-up guy. You see, this isn't a game to me. I'm not positioning myself. This is deadly serious. This is the real world matters here. The real world matters here. It's hard enough to be a conservative on radio and TV. It's hard enough to be a conservative at a newspaper without people leaking against you. Just remember that. And I think many of you already know that. So don't be surprised when journalists lie or deceive or leak themselves. That's the problem, isn't it? So what he's referring to is an article that came out last week. Tucker Carlson was outed for being a key source to the media, to mainstream media, dare I say to liberal media, during the Trump years. And so he was close with Trump. He would talk to Trump. He was probably close with other people inside the Trump administration. He would get dirt on what's going on. And then he would give mainstream media the dirt, and mainstream media would report on the stuff, and they would protect Tucker's anonymity. So, um, I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? Basically, the piece is littered with quotes about how Tucker plays both sides all day long. And, you know, it's actually not surprising when you look back in retrospect, because I remember there were pieces early on during the pandemic where mainstream media was giving Tucker Carlson credit because Tucker Carlson allegedly went to Mar-a-Lago to beg Trump to take COVID seriously. Now, everybody sort of reported that uncritically. I was even duped by the stories. Then come to find out, within like a month or two, Tucker was going full COVID-19 silliness, you know, wrong about virtually everything around it. And it's like, well, why were there all these puff pieces early on that were sucking him off, saying like, oh, God, he's the only smart one, and he's trying to tell Trump this isn't a hoax, you need to take it seriously. It's because Tucker was the one who was talking to them. And he was, what he was doing was exchanging with the media insider secrets for positive coverage of him. That's what was going on. And so Mark Levin obviously read the article, caught wind of this, and now he's calling out his fellow Fox News host on his radio show. Man, I hope Tucker responds. It'll be hilarious if Tucker responds. I want them to go at it. I want them to slit each other's throats, metaphorically. Um, so there's a bunch of parts in this to break down. By the way, there's no, like, there are no good guys in this story, just to be clear. Uh, you, know, you could look at this and say, both massive losers. So I like when Levin says, I was in the Reagan administration, and I never leaked anything. Imagine bragging about that. Congrats on being a sycophant to a mentally deficient, corrupt corporatist. 
you know that guy who was a mess and had terrible policies? I was in his administration, and I was so loyal to him. Congrats on shutting your brain off and being an authoritarian to a guy who was play-acting president. He's a, he was an actor, and then he became president. He played the role of, like, Mr. America. But what were his policies? Tax cuts for the rich and deregulation. And, by the way, um, you know, there was a whole Iran-Contra scandal, which we don't need to get into because it's very well known. So, I mean, come on, Mark. That's, what a silly thing to brag about. And then he goes on to say that, you know, what happened in that story speaks ill of loyalty and character. You can make that argument, but you could also make the argument that, like, giving facts to the country about an idiot president can speak very well of character. In fact, you could say that's patriotic in a way. Now, listen, I'm not going to say that because there, Tucker wasn't doing it for any high-minded, idealistic journalism reasons. He was doing it because he wanted positive press on himself, and he wanted to play both sides, and he wanted to have friends everywhere who would take a hands-off approach on him. So, again, Mark Levin is fascinating because what he's admitting to here is, I'm a sycophant, and I'm an authoritarian bitch boy. I will fall in line for whoever my Republican daddy is. Recently it was Trump. Previously it was Reagan. He's like a true Kool-Aid drinking ideologue. Um, that's what Levin is admitting to here without realizing it. And Tucker was outed in that story as being like a complete weasel playing both sides of the fence, looking for praise from everybody. And probably really he doesn't have an ideology. You know what I mean? And we pointed this out about Tucker many times. He's a fraud in the sense that every now and then he'll use populist rhetoric on economics, but then he always redirects his audience's support right back into standard Republican politicians who aren't remotely popular. You know, so that's fraudulent. That's ridiculous. And then also, you know, previously he would like decry the culture war and talk more about economics and war, and now he's all in on the culture war shit. So, again, he strikes me as pretty clearly fraudulent and... um, I'm not surprised by this story. I think he is a weasel. I think he is playing both sides. I think he is uh, two-faced and playing the media game, trying to play it better than everybody else. And uh, Levin is a jackass and an idiot, but you could say at least he actually believes in something, even if everything he believes in is wrong. So, like I said, there's no winners. (laughs) One is a two-faced weasel. The other one is a complete moron, and it's like, Correct. Like, that's why this story is even worth talking about, because it shows everybody as how they really are. Okay. So I'm sure you guys remember, during the Trump administration, we had a really, really tense moment. I mean, there were many tense moments, but this was like, peak dangerous moment here where I was like, oh my God, I hated what I was seeing unfold. Um, The reports were damning. I'm talking, of course, about um, when you had the BLM protests and you had riots in the wake of George Floyd, and then Trump threatened to do a total authoritarian crackdown. Well, now we have some new reporting and some new evidence that, in fact, he was literally going to do it, and he had to be talked out of it. So everything was all set and ready to go, and 
we dodged a bullet. We got super lucky at the last minute um, because of certain actors behind the scenes. So first, let me show you this. New, Trump expressed so much interest in using active duty troops in response to the protests after the killing of George Floyd that White House aides drafted a proclamation for him to sign to invoke the Insurrection Act. So they drafted the paperwork. And again, we got super lucky at the last minute that it wasn't invoked. So let me just give you a little bit more information on the Insurrection Act. We talked about it at the time, but it bears repeating here. So the Insurrection Act is from 1807. And the idea of it is to deploy the U.S. military or federalized National Guard troops within U.S. borders, so deploy them in our own cities to suppress civil disorder, insurrection, or a rebellion. So that's the idea. Now, the last time it was used was actually during the 90s uh, for the L.A. riots. And then just before that, in 1989, it was used for um, the, the response to Hurricane Hugo. Now, there Interesting examples of it, like Grant used it against the KKK. Fascinating. Um, But also it was used in conflicts with Native Americans, conflicts with Native Americans, so wiping out the indigenous population. And it was used in 1831 by Andrew Jackson to put down a slave rebellion. It was used to put down a slave rebellion, the Insurrection Act. By the way, just to put it in perspective, the modern interpretation of this. George W. Bush, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina in 2006, his administration wanted to use it. They basically hit roadblocks and they were, he was convinced, I I actually can't use it because it's unconstitutional. That's fascinating. So George W. Bush, who did torture, did Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib, lied us into the Iraq war. Even he was like, deploying the U.S. military on our own streets because there's maybe some looting in the midst of after Hurricane Katrina. Legal roadblocks, technicalities, I think it's going to be unconstitutional. That really puts it into perspective for you. So who were the, the silent heroes behind the scenes? This is fascinating. You wouldn't expect it, but Bill Barr was actually the deciding voice against it. Now... Um, also, this one is perhaps less surprising. General Milley was one of the voices against it. So Trump made up his mind, and he was insistent, we're going to invoke the Insurrection Act. Um, and Trump said to Milley in the midst of a heated argument, quote, I said, you're in fucking charge. And then Milley responded, quote, well, I'm not in charge. And then Trump responded, because Milley raised his voice, so Trump raised his voice even more and said, You can't fucking talk to me like that. So like, I'm the president of the United States. Like, know your role type stuff. Damn, son. And so what happened then was they basically turned to Barr, who was somebody else who was in the room, and they were like, well, like, what do you think? You make the call, basically. Trump's saying do the Insurrection Act. They got the paperwork that they're drafting right now. He's ordering General Milley to be in control in the streets of the United States of America and deploy the U.S. military to stop our own people, right? Not supposed to be how it works, but that's what he was calling for. Millie's like, I'm not going to do that. And um, Barr interjects and he's like, all right, General Millie's right. Now, interestingly, the reason why he said this is honestly, 
I think because um, the way the Insurrection Act is supposed to work is, like, you need to give the local governments and the state governments time to address it on their own. So time to use their police forces, for example. You also, it's preferable that they, if you are to, um, you know, use the Insurrection Act, if you are to invoke it, you should have the invitation of the states and localities in question. And so General Milley was like, or excuse me, not General Milley, Bob Barr was like, you got to give the, in, the states and, and the cities time to address it on their own and, and or invite you in if it's not working. And so, listen, man, on this show, I try my best to deal in facts. You know, I, I have an opinion. I'll give you guys my opinion. That's always how it works. But at the same time, the facts have to come first. And in this instance, it was both General Milley and uh, Bob Barr who saved the day. Bob Barr? No, Bob Barr is the libertarian candidate from years ago. Bill Barr, who saved the day. Bill Burr saved the day. I'm kidding. Bill Burr, the comedian, uh, bust down the door in the Oval Office and was like, Mr. President, you can't do this. I'm just kidding. Um, that's amazing. That's amazing. And listen, it's funny because there are instances where basically the establishment held Trump back, and I think the establishment was actually 100% correct. This is an instance of that, where Milley and Barr, who more represent the establishment, I agree with them. I think they were correct. I think it's massive overkill. I think it's deeply authoritarian to deploy U.S. troops in our streets. The police can handle it, right? Um, But then there are instances where I think the opposite is true. Namely, there were times when Trump was like, we should get out of Afghanistan. We're going to get out of Afghanistan. And then the establishment was like, no, we're not. And he was like, okay, fine. I guess we won't get out of Afghanistan. So there were times where I wish Trump's word overrode the establishment. And then this is a rare instance where I'm happy the establishment's word overrode Trump. You know, Trump's philosophy, at least in theory, he would say, let's get out of the foreign wars. But then he'd want to deploy our military on our own streets. And the establishment's perspective was, let's continue doing the endless wars, but also no way we deploy our troops on our own streets because that's un-American and that's unconstitutional. That's not right. I mean, obviously, you guys know my take on all that stuff. My position is like, bring the troops home and the endless wars, and also don't deploy U.S. troops on our own streets. So we were really close to disaster. We were really close to what I think is a truly authoritarian move on Trump's part. Um, Yes, this act was invoked a number of times previously, but listen, in my opinion, it's it's pretty clearly unconstitutional. And I feel the same way about like the War Powers Act, because that's what's invoked sometimes to allow a president to go bomb without congressional approval and without an imminent threat. They're just like, ah, War Powers Act gives us the ability to do it. It's like, well, I think aspects of the War Powers Act are unconstitutional. And so I don't agree with it. I feel the same way about the Insurrection Act. Deploying U.S. soldiers on our own streets, that's not what they exist for. That's not their job. They shouldn't be doing that. That's incredibly authoritarian. And, you know, find another way to handle it. Find a way to handle it that, is, that upholds everybody's rights and allows for due process and leads to less violence and a de-escalation. So there's a rare instance where it's like, thank God Trump was held back a little bit because this could have ended a lot worse than it did. All right, next. Going to do one more and then we'll take a break. 
Actually, you know what? Wrong. I'm going to take a break now. How do you like them apples? When we come back, we're going to talk about the media and how the U.S. ranks dead last in media trust. And then I got more on Biden. I got um, more on Trump and a poll on socialism that will absolutely blow your socks off. So stay right there, everybody. We'll be right back with all this and more.
bitch. All right, we're back, y'all. We are back. So there's this story that's blowing up as we speak. Um, there's this athlete by the name of Gwen Berry, and she, um, she is going to be in the Olympics, and apparently at an event that just happened, um, she won the bronze medal, and they were playing uh, the Star Spangled Banner, was it? It was either the Star Spangled Banner or one of the other patriotic songs of the country. And she decided she was going to turn away as they were playing it. And so right-wing media got a hold of this, and they're going nuclear. Now, the media asked when, hey, uh, I, uh, was it the National Anthem or the Star Spangled Banner? I don't know. It doesn't matter. One of the patriotic songs. Um, so they asked her, hey, why'd you do this? Apparently, this isn't even like the first time she's done it. She's done it previously. And listen, she says in a very straightforward way, I'm protesting racial injustice. Now, I've never seen anything where she gives specifics as to, hey, here's the exact thing I'm talking about, and here's the policy solutions I'm talking about, and if America fixes this, this, and this, then maybe I'll separate. I haven't heard her talk in detail, but the article I read on it is clear that she's like, racial injustice, that's why I'm doing this. So this is hilarious because it flips everything that the right usually says directly on its head. So Dan Crenshaw just went on Fox News, and he called for Gwen Berry to be removed from the Olympic team because she turned away from the flag. Okay. Then we also have a guy by the name of Mike Huckabee. He tweeted something about this as well. He said, maybe she should compete for a nation she respects. North Korea, China, Cuba. Is this athletic privilege? Disgusting. Why should she even want to represent the USA? She doesn't deserve to wear the same flag as those who died for her arrogant, childish stunt. So you're sensing a pattern here, of course. The, uh, the pattern is kick her off, kick her off, kick her off. Mike Huckabee wants her gone. She doesn't deserve to wear the same flag as everybody who died for her. Dan Crenshaw wants it. I guarantee you a bunch of right-wing commentators are going to come out of the woodworks, and they're going to say the exact same thing. Now, here's the obvious point. This is cancel culture. This is right-wing cancel culture. That's what this is. You're saying kick her off the team has nothing to do with her athletic performance or ability. She could be amazing. And your response, I don't care. Kick her off because I think she's not sufficiently patriotic enough. Oh, so she's committing a thought crime. So you're canceling her over her free expression and her free speech. Her free expression was turning away from the flag, and the free speech was saying, I'm doing this for, because I'm protesting racial injustice. So this is right-wing cancel culture. This is right-wing political correctness. That's what this is. This is right-wing political correctness. So the thing that um, is really amazing is they don't see the hypocrisy. The other point is every time there's a cop who kills an unarmed black person, and then there are protests. Elements of the protest turn violent and turn to riots. There have been plenty of riots after a police killing or something similar. What's the point that they always make, conservatives? They say, for the love of God, just stop burning down the buildings, just stop being violent, 
why don't you peacefully protest? If you peacefully protested, we would agree with you. But you have to make it violent, and now we don't agree with you, and now we're coming after you. Well, here's your peaceful protest, and you're still not for it. You still turn against it. You scream peaceful protest, and then when somebody peaceful pro- peacefully protests, you go, not like that. So what do you have to do? Peacefully protest in a way that nobody ever sees it or hears it or reacts to it? This is exactly the same thing as Colin Kaepernick. The same people who whine and bitch and moan about political correctness and freedom of speech and cancel culture, they immediately were like, cancel Colin Kaepernick. He should lose his job. He shouldn't have a job because he kneeled during the national anthem. Listen, I said it before, I'll say it again. I like to think I'm completely principled on this issue of cancel culture and free speech in a way that almost nobody else is. I mean, I know it sounds like I'm sucking myself off here, and I sort of am just a little bit, but whether it's on the right or the left, I call it out. If there's somebody who, you know, they're trying to get fired because they said something fucked up on Twitter, no, don't fire them. You can't ruin somebody's life over a tweet. That seems beyond fucked up to me. Uh, If somebody spends all their time going after comedians for jokes as opposed to caring about war or, or climate change or income and wealth inequality or corruption. I think your priorities are fucking dumb. And so I'll call it out when I see it on the left. But you know what? There's, what is it, over 30 states that are Republican states that are literally crafting anti-protesting laws right now? That's cancel culture. That's cracking down on free speech. That's cracking down on the First Amendment quite literally. That's unconstitutional. All these anti-BDS laws where they try to make it illegal for you to sign on to BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions of Israel, that's a clear crackdown on freedom of speech. Remember the little Nas X story where he came out with the Satan shoe and then you had Republicans calling for him to literally get canceled? Kirsty Noem, the governor who built herself as this anti-cancel culture voice in the media, was like, cancel him. The hypocrisy is overwhelming. Listen, as a matter of principle, I believe in free speech. And I think people shouldn't do this fake outrage nonsense. Why not try to understand why somebody's doing what they're doing instead of just immediate, like, snap judgment and finger wagging? I'm sure if you actually have a longer conversation with her, it'd be interesting. Hey, why do you feel this way? Oh, interesting. So, you know, flesh that out for me. What is it exactly about, um, you know, racial bias in the country that you'd like to fix? Is it, is it the war on drugs? Is it the crime bill? Is it locking up, you know, people and throwing away the key for nonviolent drug offenses? So what are the solutions here? Should we legalize drugs and free all the nonviolent drug offenders? Is it the death penalty that gets under your skin? Because it's, it's applied in a disproportionate way and a racist way. A black person and a white person can commit the same crime, and a black person is much more likely to get the death penalty. Mandatory minimums are applied in a racist way. Black person, white person commit the same crime. Uh, black persons gets more time, generally. These are facts. So what, which things specifically are you like, that's my concern, that's what I care about, we need to fix that. I'm sure it'd be interesting. And by the way, very famous quote, dissent is the highest form of patriotism. So saying, I'm going to critique my country to try to improve it, is the highest form of patriotism. And they're flipping it and saying, no. She actually just hates the country. That's it. Must be uh, so comfortable to live in a world where everybody who disagrees with you politically is by definition un-American and full of hate and terrible. 
deeply unserious, deeply, I mean, this is anti-intellectual stuff, and I think that's pretty clear. All right, let's talk about the media. Let's talk about the media, the U.S. and its ranking. Get ready for this. Here we go. So we have a new poll that just came out on the media, and this is some stunning stuff here. The United States ranks dead last in media trust at just 29% among 92,000 news consumers surveyed in 46 different countries. That's incredible, guys. So let me give you uh, some more of the numbers. We can go on all day here. I'm not going to give you everything, but you have. The United States is at 29% the lowest. The highest is Finland, 65%. Um, Portugal's up there as well, 61%. I believe they're the only other one in the 60s. Uh, Brazil, 54%. Canada, 45%. Um, Even the UK is 36%. India, 38%. uh, Sort of getting lower by our territory. Greece is 32%. Mexico is 37%. I think the closest one to us was France at 30%. We're at 29% there, 30%. So they go on to, you know, expound more on this, and they say that, generally speaking, the right is more distrusting of the media than the left, although there is also left-wing distrust as well. When they ask people what specific part of the news do they trust the most, this is hilarious. People said, the weather. That's like the only news that people find trustworthy is like weather news, and that's 62% believe that. Um, So the biggest problem is that, People feel, and this is across demographic groups, whether it's people on the right who are overwhelmingly, by the way, more white and male, they feel like they're condescended to and talked down to. Um, But then you also have minority groups, women, people of color. They also say that we're we're not represented and we feel talked down to as well. So there's this, this condescension problem, this problem where the media is viewed as insular and elitist. And you want to know why it's viewed that way? Because the media is insular and elitist. That's why it's viewed that way. How many people in mainstream media talk like I do? Now, I don't mean like slight New York accent. No, I mean like how many people just talk like a regular person, talk like somebody you could be shooting the shit with at a bar? How many? Are there any? So I know this sounds silly, right? But this is what people feel. There's an insularity problem. There's an elitism problem. People don't feel like they're being represented by any of the viewpoints or any of the talking heads, and that's understandable. Um, So as a result of this, a lot of people are now avoiding news altogether. They're just done with news. And naturally, big media is trusted the least, and some local media is trusted more, although I think there's a difference between print and, uh, and TV. But big media is the least trusted. So, I mean, here we are. Here we are, 29% trust in the media. And listen, you wonder why. Well, how could you get the rise of somebody like Trump? Well, because the institutions were just as despised, if not more despised than Trump. So anybody who comes up and is sort of an arrogant asshole and just calls bullshit on everything and says everything's dumb and these guys are all liars and frauds, people are like, I mean, that's kind of true, isn't it? I mean, the institutions are shit. They're not representing me. These people are liars. These people are frauds. Now, just 
of course happened to be the case that Trump was a liar and a fraud as well, but he duped a lot of people. He duped a lot of people, you know, and there's a lot of blame to go around. You could blame people have their have agency and they make their own decisions. So yes, you blame them as individuals, but you also got to blame the system that created the the ripe scenario for a con man like Trump to exploit it. And you should. I mean, when when your so-called fact checks are gratuitous or asinine or dumb or on on issues that shouldn't be on, when you're hypercritical in ways you perhaps shouldn't be and you don't talk about the substantive stuff, people just tune you out or they dislike you. And there is a sense of like, you know, this elite media club, they just love the smell of their own farts and they love to, uh, they love being part of the group, but nobody fucking likes the group. Nobody likes you guys, man. CNN and MSNBC have hideous ratings. Fox News is a slightly different scenario. Their audience is older. Their audience are more generally TV watchers anyway, whereas younger people are more uh, online. But they're all part of their own club, whether it's the Republican club or the Democratic club or the establishment club overall. And um, people feel like it's all bullshit. And I'm telling you, media is an area where people fail up all the time. Look at the number of people who are on TV today who were for the Iraq war. Almost all of them who were for the Iraq war are still on. The one who was against it, Phil Donahue, is off the air. He was kicked off the air. You know, when you look at, for example, CNBC, the financial news, which is supposed to be more serious, if you look at the lead-up to the Great Recession, they had the CEOs on of the companies that were imploding and going bankrupt, and the CEOs were like, everything's fine, don't worry, keep giving us your money. This is what they do. This is what they do. They're just a network to rep the interests of the billionaires and the corporations. That's it. They're not giving news and information. They're doing propaganda. MSNBC does propaganda for the Democratic establishment. Fox News does it for the Republican establishment. CNBC does it for the financial elites. They all do it for the establishment writ large. Of course people don't fucking like it. Of course they don't like it. I'm surprised it's as high as 29%. Who the fuck are the 29% who like it? You know? So, and the problem is, on the right at least, the problem is, they know the media is full of shit, but then they turn to people who are even bigger liars and bigger charlatans like Newsmax and One America News Network. You know? So it's like the problem breeds an even bigger problem. God damn it. I mean, again, it's really sad that you guys feel like you have to come to an idiot, loudmouth YouTuber like myself to get anything remotely resembling honesty and, and truth. That's not to say that this show is great. It's to say they're so bad <laughs> that people are like, I don't know, that YouTuber who makes fart noises with his mouth seems like he tells, he's honest and he tells the truth about shit. Oh, uh, is that where we are as a nation? The answer is yes. That's where we are as a nation. And this stuff needs to change, man. And it needs to change now. All right, next. All right, so Joe Biden um, gave people on the left a little bit of hope last week, and then he immediately collapsed, imploded, folded, and uh, made everybody feel dumb for having even just a teeny weeny inchy ounce of hope. So he came out and um, 
said something along the lines of, listen, don't even bother sending the bipartisan infrastructure deal to my desk if the, the, desk if the reconciliation bill doesn't get to my desk. So in other words, I'm not signing that reconciliation. I'm not signing the bipartisan one if the reconciliation one doesn't get there. I care about both bills, and I either sign them both or I sign none of them. That was the implication of what he was saying. It was a very clear veto threat. Well, then, after the Republicans saw that, and they whined, and they bitched, and they moaned, and they cried, and they went on TV, this is unfair, uh, Biden comes out, and we get this. At a press conference after announcing the bipartisan agreement, I indicated that I would refuse to sign the infrastructure bill if it was sent to me without my family's plan and other priorities, including clean energy. That statement understandably upset some Republicans who do not see the two plans as linked. They are hoping to defeat my family's plan and do not want their support for the infrastructure plan to be seen as aiding passage of the family's plan. My comments also created the impression that I was issuing a veto threat on the very plan I had just agreed to, which was certainly not my intent. Completely backs down, completely implodes, completely folds. He's literally saying, no, I mean, I agree to the plan, so no matter what, I'm going to sign the bipartisan plan. But you were just saying that it has to come with the reconciliation plan, or you're not going to sign it. Now you're saying... My comments also created the impression that I was issuing a veto threat on the very plan I had just agreed to, which was certainly not my intent. Now, listen, there is a technical uh, way that Biden can try to weasel out of this, which is Pelosi apparently said, if one of the bills gets to your desk, both of them are getting to your desk. Like, we literally won't even vote on the bipartisan one if the Senate doesn't take up the partisan one. So that's Pelosi saying, you'll either get neither of the bills to your desk or you'll get both of the bills to your desk. So Biden, if somebody were to call him out to his face about this, he might say, ah, here's what you don't understand. I'm either going to get both or I'm going to get none. So I'm either signing them both or I'm signing none. So he could make that argument. But what is very clear is that in terms of rhetoric, this is a white flag to the Republicans. The rhetoric is, oh, if I upset you, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you please still support the bipartisan deal. Here's why this is inexcusable to me. The bipartisan deal is fucking trash. It's trash. I'd wipe my ass with that bipartisan deal. Are you kidding me? It privatizes large swaths of our infrastructure. It hands it over to Wall Street. Like, you know, we covered the details of this the other week. The thing is a mess. It's also, by the way, regressive because it raises taxes on working people. I don't want to raise taxes on working people. The Republicans pretend like they're in favor of tax cuts, but apparently they're not in favor of tax cuts for regular people. They're only in favor of tax cuts for the wealthy. This bill raises taxes on regular people with the gas tax, and it's a privatization scheme. So, listen, if I'm Biden, I would have just probably not said anything, and then in the event that both got to my desk, I'd sign the partisan one and not sign the bipartisan one. And I'm like, yeah, this is trash. Here, take it. I don't care that you passed the bipartisan deal. What are the details of the deal? If the details are bad, why would I sign it? Why would I sign it? Just to say, I did something bipartisan. It, you could, in a bipartisan way, agree to torture. Does that make torture good? No. I mean, it's just one example, but we can go on and on here. Obviously, you guys know they always agree to, in a bipartisan way, to deregulate Wall Street and to start more war. doesn't mean they're good. So I veto the bipartisan deal, and I sign the partisan deal. But listen... Here's the thing that nobody's saying, and I don't know why nobody's saying it. Again, this is one of those weird things where everybody in in political media agrees to do kabuki theater. 
I don't think this two-a-bill two approach, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to work because I'm not sure you're going to pass either one, <laughs> the bipartisan one or the partisan one. And I never understood the idea from the beginning. It just seemed like a pipe dream from the very beginning. I don't think you're going to get like cinema and mansion to agree to a bipartisan deal and then also get them to agree to a partisan deal, which has a lot of the stuff that they say they don't want. So if you were going to do this, you should have done it in one bill. And again, I hate to be a broken record here, but I'm a broken record for a reason. Biden should have done the carrot or stick approach with cinema and mansion and the seven or eight other Democrats who are a thorn in his side and let him know, no, you're going to vote for my agenda. We're going to come up with a bill that's somewhat palatable, and then you're going to vote for my agenda. And if you don't, you're going to regret it. If you do vote for it, I'm going to be your best friend, and you're going to love the perks that come along with that. I mean, that's what he had to do, but he's not doing that. He's not being LBJ. He's not being FDR. He's acting a lot more like Obama than he thinks he is. Um, And so I don't think this, this plan is going to work, and you already have cracks in the foundation. You already have plenty of lawmakers speaking up like, this isn't going to work, and I'm not going to be for this. All right, well, if you can't cobble together a coalition, then you're not going to get anything done. And I think that's where we're going to be. So now it's adding insult to injury. You know, the injury is not getting anything through. The insult is you also came out there like a cuck and said to Republicans, please don't be mad at me. I'm sorry I said the thing that was the correct thing to say. Of course the correct thing to say was like, this is, I know they're separate bills, but I'm only signing them if both of them come to me. Duh, that was the original idea. You can't be like, the original idea, I, did I say? I'm reiterating the original idea of this thing. Why would I do that? No, I'm against the original idea of this thing, maybe. Beta shit, man. Beta shit. All right, next. So what we learned this week is that when Trump had COVID, apparently behind the scenes, everybody was flipping out at the White House. And a bunch of them low-key thought he was going to die. Because, you know, and when you think about it, it's like, of course they thought that. A lot of us thought that. I thought for a little bit he was going to die. Of course I thought he was going to die. Why? I mean, guys, he's, he's the key demographic to not make it. He's 74 years old, he's obese, and he never exercises. (laughs) I mean, so it's not crazy. The crazy thing would be to have that thought not cross your mind. Well, anyway, they weren't thinking about it. So take a look at this. Um, White House officials were in a panic when then-President Trump contracted the coronavirus in October 2020, according to an upcoming book. The White House reportedly called the then-FDA commissioner, Stephen Hahn, asking the FDA to sign off on a compassionate use authorization for a monoclonal antibody treatment immediately for an unnamed person. The alleged incident is detailed in the book, Nightmare Scenario, uh, Scenario, Scenario, people say that different ways, Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic That Changed History by Washington Post Reporters. So, yeah, they they go on and they give the specifics in there. They say that uh, they called and they wouldn't tell the FDA commissioner who it was for, but the FDA person was like, listen, I need to review the records and I need to know exactly who we're talking about here so I know whether or not this treatment is remotely in the realm of what's okay. 
And um, I don't know, I think he found out that it was Trump, but he didn't find out because they were direct about it. Now, another interesting piece of information is that the White House staffers thought that Trump having COVID would humble him and make him take uh, the pandemic more seriously. But the exact opposite happened. So when he defeated it, he went 1,000 miles an hour in the wrong direction. And whatever the, they wanted him to start following the masking rules and the social distancing rules and guidelines in the White House, he did the exact opposite. And his own staffers were like, Jesus Christ, this guy is, is as dense as dense could be. Guys, there was a time when his blood oxygen level plummeted into deeply unsafe territory. Do you realize how bad he had to be for this White House, which loves to hide every little thing about him, for this White House to have to go to the hospital? That means homeboy was sitting there probably struggling to breathe properly. And so they gave him oxygen, and they did end up giving him the monoclonal antibody thing. And they make a great point in the article on this. They say, like, Trump was defiant, but, dog, you had access to a drug that definitely at the time, I don't know the case now, but definitely at the time, regular people didn't have access to that shit. They had access to something like a blood plasma thing, which is somewhat similar. But this was experimental, probably is still experimental, and there wasn't that much of a supply of it. So you literally got the best treatment in the world. And by the way, they hit it really hard up front. Usually what they do is they don't, like, they wait a decent amount of time until, you know, hey, now we need to give the remdesivir or whatever it is. With Trump, he walked in and they were like, give him everything right now, do it. Now, yeah, you can make the argument, maybe he already wasn't as bad of a uh, condition as he possibly could have been. In fact, there is some evidence to that conclusion. But um, you do get the sense that there was some arm twisting from the White House as well. Like, no, don't even, sp- don't even space shit out. Hit him with multiple things right the fuck now. And so he got treatment that like other people can't get. And he got it in a way that other people don't get it. And of course he walked out more arrogant and brash than ever thinking like, "Eh, there's nothing to fear about this thing. Come on, bro. I beat it. You can beat it too. You're 74 fat. You never work out and you had the best healthcare in the world. And there were still moments of like, what's happening? So Sort of amazing, and that is sort of a bombshell if you think about it. They, there were people in the White House who were like, he's going to die. He's going to fucking die. Wild. All right, next. So there's this new poll out from Axios, and there are some stunning findings in it. Let me show you. Just 66% of Republicans and GOP leaners, ages 18 to 34, have a positive view of capitalism. That's down from 81% in January 2019 when we first polled on these questions. That's a huge drop, guys. 15-point drop in that short time frame. 56% of younger Republicans say the government should pursue policies that reduce the wealth gap up from just 40% two years ago. So it was a, a minority before... Now, it's a clear majority that say you need to reduce the income and wealth inequality. That's amazing. There's Republicans, young Republicans we're talking about. In 2019, 58% of Americans aged 18 to 34 reacted positively to the word capitalism. That's plunged to 49% today. So now it's just under 50%. That's incredible. Back then, 39% of all U.S. adults viewed socialism positively. That has since ticked up to 41%. Socialism has positive connotations for 60% of black Americans, 
45% of American women and 33% of non-white Republicans. Those numbers have grown over the past two years from 53%, 41%, and 27% respectively. So these are big moves, guys. Only 48% of American women view capitalism in a positive light, down from 51% two years ago. And so they also go on to say, today, 18 to 34-year-olds are almost evenly split between those who view capitalism positively and those who view it negatively. So it's 49% positively, 46% negatively. Two years ago, you ready for this? It was 58% positive and 38% negative. So, I mean, listen, what's happening? It doesn't take a genius to figure this out, man. The pandemic happened, and then people realized, oh, shit, the government came in, came in and gave me a little stimmy love, and that shit was helpful, and I liked it, and we should do more of that. That's what happened. What happened is a pandemic, and through no fault of their own, people lost their jobs in the private marketplace, and they were like, oh, this is volatile, this is silly, this is dumb, this is unsustainable, this is fragile, we need to do something better, and then the government had to step in and say, here's some unemployment assistance, here's a, a stimulus check, and by the way, oops, we just proved to you guys that government could be a force for good if we want it to be. Shocker. Look at the New Deal. Look at Social Security. Look at Medicare. Look at Medicaid. I mean, duh, of course the government could be a force for good if they want to be. If you have the right rules, if you have the right laws, if you have the right programs, of course. That should be obvious. But for the longest time, people have been raised on this notion of Reaganomics and the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, and all that nonsense. The neoliberal era. Even Bill Clinton half agreed, or more than that probably, the right-wing ideology. So now we were in a position where we had no choice. The government had no choice. Now, of course, they did things that were terrible too, like they bailed out all the corporations with no strings attached yet again. That's the downside of the bailouts and the spending. But the upside, people looked at that like, shit, I needed this, and this saved me. And that changed people's minds, man. Listen, material well-being will always be king. Material well-being will always override whatever silly culture war issue of the day or brainwashing propaganda you've been force-fed. And I think that's what this proves. So let's, let's reiterate here. There was a 15-point drop even among young Republicans in just a few years in their support of capitalism. A strong majority of Republicans say, Effectively, redistribute the wealth. You need to redistribute it. This is ridiculous. And the youth in the country is nearly evenly split on capitalism versus socialism. That says a lot. And listen, it gets back to a main point that we have on this show all the time, which is when you actually look at the polling data, when you look at the specific issues, people are overwhelmingly left. They want to raise the minimum wage. They want to raise, uh, you know, taxes on the rich. They want to raise taxes on corporations. They want, now they want UBI. It was 55% in the middle of the pandemic. So you go issue for issue. They want to end the wars. People are like, I'm on the left. But there's colossal effort to cloud everybody's judgment and muddy the waters and make people feel like that's not the case. You have the culture war, which the right invokes to just drag people back to the right. Like, oh, no, don't, don't do that. 
What about religion? What about cancel culture? What about all this bullshit? Don't look at the economics, though. Don't look at the economics, though. And, of course, you have a government that's totally corrupt and bought and owned. You know? So, but the point is, even with the government doing the bare minimum in the middle of a pandemic and what was effectively a depression, people were like, oh, shit, I love this, dog. I absolutely love this. telling you, man, you just need a competent social democrat who knows how to run, and that person can crush in an election, crush in an election. Unfortunately, you know, I don't think we have a competent social democrat who's not also sort of too in the weeds on the social issues and the culture war stuff, um, and also who has a, a metaphorical pair of steel balls. That's also something we need. So it, it's a little upsetting because you see the potential, and then you see the reality of who we get. We got Trump, and then we get Biden. I mean, come on. But, I mean, the left base and left voters are all in on left economic policies, and now you have a majority of young Republicans are like, yeah, I, I agree more with them. So this, I mean, this is the definition of populism. If a majority of young Republicans are like, redistribute the wealth, of course. Guys, because you know what? What people learned beyond any doubt is that, oh, my God, all, everybody who lost their jobs, it wasn't their fault. It has nothing to do with laziness. It has nothing to do with a character flaw or a moral failing. People lost their jobs because of something totally out of their control. That makes people wake up. That makes people wake up. It changes it from an individual analysis to a collective analysis, a systemic analysis. I mean, that's super important. That is super important. So you can't fool people anymore. These numbers are astounding. They're absolutely astounding. And um, billionaires, by the way, this is another fact that I think a lot of Republicans now know too, which is making them turn on the system. Billionaires got $1.2 trillion richer during the pandemic. Everybody else is struggling. They got $1.2 trillion richer. By the way, that's at the same time that millions and millions and millions of Americans flip through the cracks when it comes to the unemployment system. So people who needed money desperately, some of them didn't get a penny of unemployment assistance, and billionaires got $1.2 trillion with a T dollars richer. Wait until these people learn the other facts as well, like the one we talk about on this show all the time, the Rand Corporation study, which found that the top 1% or even the top fraction of 1% they effectively stole $47 trillion from the bottom 90% from the 1970s until today. They've rigged the system in a way that if the wealth distribution was just the same as it was in the 1970s, every American in the bottom 90% would be $1,144 per month richer. Isn't that amazing? You never hear about that. As soon as these people get educated, and this is what I'm talking about. I believe in the power to change people's minds and to make them evolve. And I know because I've seen it and I've done it. You know, I've taken people from that alt-right pipeline and made them lefties. Take yes for an answer. You know, you can change people's minds. They can evolve. They can grow. They can learn. Now, can everybody do it? No, of course there's going to be some people you can't change. But there are plenty who you can. And this poll is a testament to that. Now, it took a hell of a lot, but here we are. So now it's how do you take this energy and harness it for good, harness it for a real social democratic agenda. 
That's the open question. That's the one that no elected Democrats have figured out yet. And it's a damn shame. But this is just waiting. This is untapped potential to change the country for the better, to usher in a new New Deal era, a new FDR-style era, a new redistributive era. Government can be a force for good. We just have to demand it. All right. Conservative pundit Michael Knowles went on Dave Rubin's show. Now, Michael Knowles is a guy who I've debated previously at Politicon. It was like a a panel situation. It wasn't one-on-one, but uh, there were some hilarious moments in that. In fact, David Pakman recently released a video. I think it was titled something like, Why the Right Doesn't Want to Debate the Left. And there's all sorts of, uh, you know, left-wing commentators in there debating right-wingers. There's one clip of me debating Michael Knowles, and um, he said something along the lines of, like, I'm pro-life. And then I responded, oh, so you're against the death penalty. That's good to know. And Michael Knowles immediately was like, no, I'm pro the death penalty. (laughs) I was like, okay, so thank you for walking right into my trap. This is going to be really easy because you just contradicted yourself instantly. And there were other parts of it, too. It was like, oh, I believe in due process. I was like, oh, so you're against Guantanamo Bay. Great. He was like, no, I'm for that. Okay, well, again, you contradicted yourself. These guys are amazing. I'm in favor of due process, but only for Americans? So anyway, it's easy to run circles around him. He's not that bright. That's my point. Here he is on Dave Rubin's show. And yet again, he's going to accidentally say the quiet part loud about the right. Yes, we failed. We failed. Conservatives totally failed on this because... What the left is offering a vision of society. It's basically, the, left, the radical left vision of society is just the, the inverse of whatever the vision used to be. You know, mm-hmm. In the 1950s, if you were a communist, you would be canceled. You would lose your career in Hollywood. You, you could be prosecuted. I mean, it was, it was illegal under the Smith Act. Uh, today, you'll be canceled if you're an anti-communist. Right. So it's just, you'll still be canceled, but it's just the, the total flip of it. But they, they're actually putting forward that vision of society. What is the conservative vision on this? The conservative vision is to defend now, and this is only over the last 20 years or so, to defend free speech in the abstract, right, or to defend freedom of belief in the abstract. It's always in the abstract. But they won't ever get down to the brass tacks of what should we say? What do we believe? What what are we offering people other than... Nothing. And this is why, on the occasions that Republicans have won elections in in the last 20 years, all we've ever managed to do, almost without exception, is cut taxes a little bit and maybe cut regulation a little bit, but actually maybe not. And that's it. And and so I guess the question you have to ask yourself is after after the Reagan revolution and even the Trump revolution and the Gingrich revolution, we won won all these elections. Would you say the country today is more conservative? more free than it was 20 years ago? No way. That is quite the admission. That's quite the admission. He says it straight up. Hey, we've been in power for a long time. Would you say the country is more conservative and more free than years ago? And he's like, no. Okay, so let me break this down. The government actually is very conservative, but correct. We are not more free. So you do the math on that. All these conservative policies, but you don't feel more free. Hmm, perhaps conservative policies don't really foster freedom in any, in any meaningful sense of the word. Again, he's sort of admitting this. You know, yes, I'm dissecting it more, but he did say, would you say the country is more conservative and free than years ago? 
I would say, yes, the government is conservative. Um, and correct, we're not more free than we were years ago. Definitely not. We're in a pretty horrendous situation right now. So the policies of the country, we're still in many ways in the Reagan era. There's been, now been a dash of, of a throwback to the FDR era, just the tiniest bit with the stimulus checks and uh, with the unemployment assistance. But that's just a tiniest dash, whereas we're still 90% in the Reagan era, in the neoliberal era. And again, it was fostered, started by Reagan. It was continued, including under Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, who had the opportunity to break free from that, and they didn't. Um, so, I mean, again, that is, that is a, pr- a pretty stunning admission, because the government is super conservative. We're not more free. We're actually fucked. And... I haven't said anything yet about the people. The actual people, their opinions are left. But the government is conservative, so it's not representative of the people. I'll get back to that point. So I like how he says at the beginning, in the 1950s, if you were a communist, you were canceled and sometimes prosecuted. And he sounds like he's yearning for those days back. Right? Am I wrong? Am I misreading that? You go back and watch it again. It sounds like when he's talking about it, he's like, damn, weren't those the good old days? Back in the day, in the 1950s, if you were a communist, you were canceled and sometimes prosecuted under the Smith Act. And now he says you're canceled if you're an anti-communist. Really? How are you canceled if you're an anti-communist? Has anybody been fired because they're not a communist? You know, has anybody been prosecuted because they're not a communist? That's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and it's completely counterfactual. Um, But it does seem like he's yearning for the McCarthy days. And by the way, there's a lot of modern McCarthyism on the left where... You know, there's accusations of you're a puppet to Russia, you're funded by Russia or whatever. So there is a version of modern-day McCarthyism, but he seems like he wants, he's jealous of the days when we could just lock up communists. Then he goes on to explain, what have the conservatives offered us? The conservatives have only really offered us tax cuts and some deregulation. So, correct, they've only offered us tax cuts for the rich, to be clear, and, yeah, they've offered us deregulation, like deregulating Wall Street, which leads to more greed and more recklessness and more market crashes. Deregulating the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which allows big financial institutions to rip off Americans to the tune of billions of dollars. So, yes, that is what the conservatives stand for. He's right about that. Tax cuts for the rich and deregulation. And those things are horrendous, horrendous. Some of the biggest policy mistakes in decades. Now, he also says, oh, they, us conservatives also stand for free speech in the abstract. No, you don't. You don't even stand for it in the abstract. There's over 30 states where Republicans are passing anti-protest laws, which is deeply against the First Amendment and freedom of speech and free expression. There's uh, conservative states that are in favor of criminalizing BDS, again, deeply against the First Amendment and free speech. There's the, the uh, thing going on this week with Gwen Berry, who turned away from the American flag during, uh, you know, she's an athlete and she's going to be in the Olympics. She turned away from the American flag when she got, she came in third and uh, conservatives are calling for her to get kicked off the Olympic team. That's you not believing in free speech and free expression. Lil Nas X with the Satan shoe, people wanted him to be canceled for that. That's not you believing in free speech or free expression. That's you guys being politically correct in your own sense. So I I don't agree with that part about free speech in the abstract. Um, And then, of course, he says, early on, well, the left offers a vision of society and the right doesn't. So let me break that down. 
the grassroots left does offer a vision of society, and it's a good one. The grassroots left wants universal health care, universal college, unionization, higher wages, more democracy in the workplace, you know, an end to climate change, an end to wars. So, yes, the grassroots left does have a vision, and it's a good vision, and it sells. You could argue, you can make a different argument when it comes to social issues and cancel culture and things of that nature. Fair enough. But the elected leaders of the left, I actually disagree with them. They don't have a vision. I can't name, Bernie had a vision, but even now he's being much more of a partisan Democrat falling in line with Biden and not as aggressive on the things that he always cared about. So I would argue the elected left doesn't have a vision. The grassroots left does have a vision. Now on the Republican side, no, the, the elected right does have a vision, and it's tax cuts for the wealthy and deregulation, as you already laid out. It's that mixed with a whole bunch of culture war bullshit. But it's interesting because his admission is, hey, we're not really better off right now, and we're not really, we haven't really increased freedom in any meaningful sense. Yes, yes, exactly. You want to know how you increase freedom and human potential? You increase it by taking the basics off the table. So you can, are you really free in any meaningful sense if you can go bankrupt for medical bills? I don't think you are. Are you really free in any meaningful sense if in this country young people have accrued $1.7 trillion with a T of student loan debt? Are you really free in any meaningful sense if you've got to pay off your student loans into your 50s? Are you? Are you really free in any meaningful sense if you work for a wage that isn't a living wage? And so you work full time, you're not lazy, you have no moral character failing, but you still can't pay the bills. Are you really free in any meaningful sense? So I submit to you the way to increase human freedom and potential is to move closer to social democracy or socialism, form of market socialism, for example. I mean, that's libertarian socialism, you could say. This is how you increase freedom in a meaningful sense, where you give people better wages, you give people more leisure time, more control of their own lives, and listen, again, Michael Knowles is admitting the most important part. He's like, yeah, the right, they push for tax cuts. Again, for the rich. He doesn't say that, but I'm saying that because it's true. Tax cuts for the rich and it's deregulation. He says sometimes. No, he's right. It's pretty much all the time. Tax cuts for the rich and deregulation. And hey, everybody's still sort of screwed. Correct, Michael. Which is why neoliberalism and neoconservatism, by the way, the endless wars, this is not the answer. This is not the answer. You're increasing human misery and suffering and poverty and degradation. The real answer is to have more of a social democratic system. That will increase freedom. Um, but yes, the, the elected right, they do have a vision, and it's a bad vision. So, he, I mean, he pretty much says the quiet part loud here, doesn't he? He pretty much says the quiet part loud. Hey, we've been in control for a long time, and things aren't getting better. That's exactly the point. So you shouldn't be in control. We should end the Reagan era, and we should start an all-out new FDR-type era, social democratic era, the idea that government can be a force for good and can help people and can be representative of the will of the people. That's what we need to do. Okay. Next.
All right, so um, conservative Kevin McCarthy, he's going to explain for us what he thinks the two greatest threats to the United States are. This is kind of hilarious. Let's watch it, and then I'm going to rip it apart. And then what we'll find as well is no one's asked me about when's the debt ceiling coming up. Well, the debt ceiling's coming up much faster because all the Democrats voted for that one. Rose. $1.9 trillion bill that had less than 9% going to COVID. So, yeah, that's a much higher debt, faster. And the two greatest threats to this nation is China and our debt. And they're spiraling in both directions by not holding them accountable and continuing to waste money of what they're spending it on. So he says China and the debt are the two biggest threats to the U.S. Imagine believing that. Seriously, imagine believing that. China and our debt. Now, by the way, if you talk about, hey, there's an issue with China because our corporations and our owner class decided to come up with terrible trade policies that have made it so we have a race to the bottom in the U.S. and we outsource good middle-class jobs to China. If you make that point, you know what I say? Full agree. That's exactly right. But I don't blame China. I blame the corporations and the owner class who have bought our government, and then our government is doing their bidding as opposed to the bidding of the people and the workers. China, they're ancillary to the broader problem, because you could outsource the jobs to China or Bangladesh or Malaysia or somewhere in Latin America. You you can do that. Are we blaming those countries? No, it's not their fault. It's the fault of the corruption and the fault of the corporations and the politicians. So I don't like, and by the way, that's not even the point he's making. This guy's for outsourcing jobs. He's a free trader, you know? So his point is China in terms of like, they're threatening us as the sole imperialist power. Okay, well, there shouldn't be imperialist powers, but if you're going to give in to that paradigm, then be fucking smarter with how you approach this. They're doing the Belt and Road Initiative and getting people to like them, and we're bombing everybody and their grandma, and then we're surprised that they don't like us. These guys are fucking dense, man. It's amazing. But China's the biggest threat to us. The debt is the biggest threat to us. Every time it's a Democratic administration in power, Republicans are always like, the debt! Oh, my God, the debt, the deficit! Oh, my God, the debt, the deficit! Meanwhile, when Trump was in power, he could spend like a drunken sailor, and they're like, sweet, bro. See, we got the economy being stimulated by the spending. This is great. We got a great economy, yes. They didn't talk about the debt. They didn't talk about the deficit. They voted for legislation that increased it massively. You know, Rand Paul claims to be the biggest deficit hawk of them all. He voted for the package. The 2017 Republican tax cut bill, 83% of the benefits went to the rich. It added massively to the deficit, and they all voted for it. Like, oh, my God, this debt and deficit. You guys voted for all the wars. You guys voted for all the tax cuts for the rich. You guys voted for corporate bailout after corporate bailout, whether it's the Wall Street bailout or whether it's the CARES Act pandemic-related bailout. You voted for all that. You, you don't get to vote for all that and be like, this fucking debt is fucking crazy. You know what I'm saying? How did this happen? Biden should not do anything ever and should tank his own administration so we could win. There's such charlatan fraud hacks. China is not the biggest threat to us. The debt is not the biggest threat to us. By the way, economists will tell you, we control our own currency. We have a sovereign currency. So doing deficit spending is not the same thing as a household doing deficit spending. It's not the same thing. And if you think it is, you're just wrong. Um, 
there's this lie going around too, 9% of the bill was for COVID, the rest of it wasn't. That's, that's so weaselly because obviously everything is in one way or another, whether it's primarily or, or in, in an ancillary way related to COVID, of course. If you're helping somebody because of pensions, well, yeah, the pension fund was depleted because we needed funds in order to fight COVID. So you give money back to the pension fund. He would say, that has nothing to do with COVID. Why? Because it's not directly spent on the virus, but it's spent in a way to help regular people who were impacted as a result of the virus. That doesn't count. They would say, no, it doesn't count because they're weaselly hacks. God, it's so frustrating because they're just dishonest. A lot of this is just dishonest. It's not like an honest disagreement. Um, and again, economists will tell you, you're supposed to spend in a downturn. We had a pandemic. We had a downturn. You're supposed to spend. You're supposed to do a stimulus package. The government is supposed to be the spender of last resort. Um, so anyway, what is actually the biggest threat to us? I, listen, I'm not going to score it, but I will bring up things that are definitely bigger threats than China and the debt. Corruption, which leads to almost every single problem we have. War, both the endless wars we're currently engaged in, creating enemies all around the world, but also the potential of some sort of accidentally nuclear, accidental nuclear catastrophe. Of course that can happen. We created nuclear weapons. We still have nuclear weapons, and a lot of the main players in the world stage are kind of permanently, uh, you know, in tension with each other. That's not a good thing. That's not a good place to be. You know, like, that seems like a huge problem. Oh, by the way, with like a couple well-placed weapons, we could destroy the entire planet. How does that not hop the list over the debt to you? Are you kidding me? Climate change is a huge problem. We got a story later on in the show. You're going to be like, whoa, I didn't know it was that bad. Just wait. Um, I would argue even artificial intelligence is a bigger problem because when it comes to, now we can harness it for good, but we're probably not going to do that because we have a corrupt system and we're not planning things out in an intelligent way. So like Stephen Hawking said, you can have the robots take over and 90% of the population is going to get fucked and left behind and then you're going to have massive unrest. That's a problem. Poverty, homelessness, these are bigger problems than all the shit he's... Anyway, I don't know why I'm bothering to try to respond rationally to this moron and this disingenuous liar, but nonetheless, here we are. He says China and the debt are the biggest problems, biggest threats to the U.S. The biggest threats are corruption. We're our own biggest enemy endless war, some potential accidental nuclear catastrophe, climate change, artificial intelligence, taking all the jobs, poverty. These are the real problems. And I think that this stuff is just downright silly that he says. All right. Let me do two more for you. So Japan is um, trying something really interesting, and I like it. This is Jeff Stein. The Japanese government has just unveiled its annual economic policy guidelines, which include new recommendations that companies permit their staff to opt to work four days a week instead of the typical five. Whoa. Now, here's why this is such a big deal. Japan, very similar to the U.S., is actually a very work-obsessed culture. And here we have a situation where in a work-obsessed culture, the government is like, let's do four days instead of five. Let's give people the option to opt into that. Whoa, because that gives me hope that if they could do it, 
we might be able to do it too at some point. So um, there have been studies which show that productivity uh, increases when you go to four days. I think there were some that say stays the same, and then others say, no, it literally increases. So you get more accomplished from working fewer days because when you have more days off, you refresh and you're more on the ball when you're working. That shouldn't be too surprising to people. Um, also, whenever we talk about this, I like to give people the history of this. They don't understand that we were so close to having um, a four-day work week during the Great Depression in the New Deal era. In fact, there was, I believe it was a 30-hour work week bill passed the House of Representatives. And I think there was some last-minute compromise which axed it and made it a 40-hour work week. And that was part of some New Deal um, deal that was made, bill that was signed into law. And, but we were this close, man. You go back and read. There was this great article that I always reference. It's this alternate article from over a decade ago where they're giving the history on this. Even conservative Republican presidents were open about the fact like, yeah, I mean, I think we should get to a point where people have, you know, multiple paid months off every year. You had conservative Republicans who were like, paid time off is a no-brainer and it should be at least a month or two. Now if Bernie says that, people are like, oh my God, communist, Marxist, tyrant, totalitarian, dictator, worst person on earth, idiot, dumbass, prick, we hate you. Conservative Republicans used to say, everybody should get paid time off by law. We literally passed a bill through the House of Representatives that was like a 30-hour work week. And by the way, now... Here's the saddest part. The reason why we were able to get shit like that through back then is because money wasn't in politics yet. So you actually had more of a debate on, like, the ideas as opposed to, hey, I got to represent my donors. I got to represent Raytheon and Pfizer every time I vote. So, unfortunately, our politicians are corrupt now, and this stuff barely gets brought up. The Democrats actually have similar things on the agenda, pay time off and stuff and pay maternity leave on the agenda, but... Yeah, it's actually got to get through reconciliation. And are you going to hold Manchin and Cinema and the seven or eight asshole Democrats who are just complete corporate sellouts? I don't know. We'll see. I doubt it, but, you know, a boy can dream. But anyway, yeah, man, four-day four work week, I really do in many ways view it as a no-brainer. You know, most people are working jobs that they despise. I forget the number, but it was something like only 15% of the workforce feels engaged at their job, which really – it hits me as like only 15% really like their job in a way where they want to be doing it. I mean, that's a crisis. That's a scandal. So if it's that low and people are working these jobs they don't want to work, either we need to retool the economy so people do fulfilling work, or in the meantime, at least make it so you have to spend fewer hours in that misery. So four-day work week, 100% in favor of that. Um, and we could still be just as productive, if not more so, and we get more leisure time, everybody's happier. I do think you'd see a drastic change when it comes to anxiety, depression, and things of that nature. Um, so I think Japan has it right. Now, I think they're just experimenting with it at this point. There's other things they reference as, like, mitigating factors and, and whatever, but at least they're giving it a shot, and I'd love to see something like that in the U.S., especially since other countries, it was either Spain or Portugal, experimented with it, and I'm pretty sure it went well. So hopefully we're next. All right, final story of the day. Here we go. So the Southwest United States 
is running out of water. I mean, I know it sounds hyperbolic. I know it sounds crazy. But uh, they're at, like, around 35% capacity for what it should be. That seems like a problem to me. Now, hopefully at some point, you know, there's a huge wet season or something, and and we can get back to, to some semblance of normalcy, but we don't know. And so right now it's a little bit, we're close to panic time. They're about to declare some sort of an emergency within the next year or two. So uh, here's a piece from now this discussing this topic, and then we'll break it down. The Colorado River, one of the longest rivers in the U.S., is drying up. So much so that for the first time ever, the U.S. government is expected to declare a water shortage in the region. But why is this happening? Well, to no one's surprise, scientists are attributing the mega drought to climate change. The Colorado River is famously known for passing through seven states in the southwest, having rich biodiversity, the Hoover Dam, and for providing drinking water to approximately 40 million people. But according to the U.S. Drought Monitor map, the southwest is exceptionally dry, which is the worst category possible, and it's taking a toll on the Colorado River system. It's projected that the river could lose anywhere between 14 to 31 percent of its flow by 2050, depending on how hot temperatures get. In fact, researchers say that for each additional 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit of warming, the river's average flow can drop by about 9%. However, what's being affected the most right now is Nevada's Lake Mead, which is the nation's largest reservoir. It's formed by the Hoover Dam right on the Colorado River. It's also a crucial water supply for Las Vegas, Phoenix, and Southern California. For both its people and agriculture, Lake Mead has dropped 130 feet since the year 2000, which is about the height of a 13-story building. The drought has also cut the dam's hydropower output by about 25%. This is what it looked like in 2000 when the water would come right up to the top of Hoover Dam. And this is what it looks like now, at just 37% capacity. Unfortunately, if it continues to drop, the dam might stop producing electricity altogether. Scientists have pinpointed that the melting of the reflective snow is what's making the river super sensitive to increasingly warming temperatures. You see, the snow is meant to serve as a protective shield against sunlight. But because the world is getting hotter, precipitation is falling more as rain instead of snow in certain areas. The snow is also melting earlier and faster in the year. So without snow, the water absorbs the sun rays and evaporates. So what's the solution? At this point, adapting. Water managers and policymakers, along with area residents and farmers, will have to adapt to new guidelines of water usage as the increase of severe water shortages is expected. Basically, people are going to have to learn how to live with less water. As I mentioned earlier, for the first time in history, the federal government is expected to declare a water shortage on the lower Colorado River, which will impact water supply for Nevada and Arizona residents and farmers starting in 2022. The seven states surrounding the river have also created the Colorado River Drought Contingency Plan, DCP for short, with the goal to reduce water supply risks and find proper ways to distribute water within streams and lakes. As for what you can do, well, try to conserve as much water as possible. The average American family uses more than 300 gallons of water a day, and a lot of that water is wasted through leaks, inefficient appliances, water faucets that are left running, etc. So the next time you leave the faucet or shower running, just remember, we're running out of water. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So you saw, like, by 2022, they're going to declare some sort of emergency. I mean, we're just, like, literally hoping that it rains enough to fill it back up. Like, what? What? 
so listen, we've talked about this previously on the show, but one of the scariest things to consider when it comes to climate change is that eventually there's going to be wars over water. You know, I mean, unless we come up with the ability to desalinate at a mass scale, so you could use the ocean water for drinking water, unless you're able to do that, there's eventually going to be wars over water. So rising sea levels is one thing. It's a whole other thing when there's just not enough water and people are fighting over that necessary resource. Another thing is more people are moving to the southwest of the U.S. as you know, they need water restrictions and they're running out of water. Um, I read an article in 2015 about how the Middle East by the end of the century could be too hot for humans to even live there. Parts of Asia as well. Too hot for humans to even live there. Where the heat index, so it feels like it's 160 degrees. And when that, it's not if, when that happens, when it's too hot to live there, what do you think happens? Everybody's got to move out of there. It's going to be a migration crisis, the likes of which you've never seen. People will not be able to stay where they live by the water if it's, you know, effectively at sea level or in some instances below sea, sea level, like parts of Louisiana. You know, they had something like eight hurricanes hit them in this last hurricane season, and people are leaving there. They're like, fuck, is this going to be like this every year? We're just going to get hit with hurricanes every single year? People are leaving there. The sea level is going to rise. It's going to engulf all that in the Middle East and in parts of Asia. It's going to be too hot for humans to live. They're going to empty out of there. And then we have a political crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen maybe ever, but definitely since like World War II. We have entire countries emptying out and desperately looking for other places to go. And a lot of countries are going to close their borders. And the ones that open it, it'll... Either way, it'll be a mess if you close it down deeply, you know, inhumane. But if you open them up, you also don't have the organization and the process in place in order to really handle the flow of migrants. I'm talking everywhere here. So this is what happens. This is what happened with climate change. And um, now we're setting records. As I talk to you guys right now, records are being set. Uh, I believe in Seattle, it's supposed to be like 113 degrees, which is a record for there. It's a record. Um. Terrifying stuff, man. Terrifying stuff. I mean, it goes without saying, we have to get off of fossil fuels ASAP. And by the way, uh, responsible for most of the emissions, big corporations. So even when you yell at people like, you shouldn't uh, do as many carbon emissions as you're doing, it's not an individual problem. It's It's a corporate problem and a collective problem, and it needs to be addressed at the policy level. But either way, Think this is bad? It's going to get a hell of a lot worse, so buckle up. All right, guys. I'm out of time, baby. I love y'all. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of the day. Peace.